The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless our, our adult Sunday school. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, we thank you for another Lord's Day where we can worship your holy name and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, our King of Kings and our Lord. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that you've poured out upon us as individuals and as a church. And we do pray that you would come and meet with us in a special way in the Sunday school hour and in the worship hour to come. We pray that your spirit would be working in our minds and in our hearts. We ask that you would convert sinners and that you'd strengthen your people, all for your honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, unless you're a visitor, we rotate these four topics in adult Sunday school. Sometimes we deal with a practical theme. Sometimes we work through confessions of faith. And we also study church history. And then today, we're going back to surveying one of the books of the Bible, and we're going to be looking at 1 Kings today, the book of 1 Kings. I'd like to give you the uh, three points or three divisions in the agenda for today. Number one, I'm calling it an introduction. We're going to look at the historical context, the author, the literary nature, the theme, the purpose, and a brief summary of First Kings. So we're going to move quickly through that first part. There's also an outline of the book and also a brief survey through the book, just very brief. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at the fulfillment of those kings in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. If, those, if that projector pops up, let me know. Just as First and Second Samuel was written in a, as a single book originally, so it is with First and Second Kings. For several hundred years, it was known as Kings, period. The book of Kings was divided into First and Second Kings around 250 B.C., when, when the Hebrew Old Testament was first translated by the Greeks. The Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint. It was then that it was divided into two books, the same with First and Second Samuel as well. Now regarding the author of the book of Kings, he had to be a prophet from the kingdom of Judah. And he had to have lived through the first part of the Babylonian exile because his historical narrative finishes with the release of King Jehoiakim from prison after 37 years of captivity. It was evil Merodach, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that liberated King Jehoiakim of Judah. The book's author is anonymous, though. But many Jewish and Christian scholars believe it was, prophet, it was the prophet Messiah who penned the book of Kings. The actual composition of the, of the book of Kings would have been somewhere around 586 BC 
and 561 BC, between those dates, as these dates mark the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of Nebuchadnezzar. The books of 1st and 2nd Kings we classify as historical narrative. Next to the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and finally Esther. The theme of 1st and 2nd Kings has been described as the development, disruption, division, decline, and dispersion of the kingdom of God through the sons of David. The main purpose of Kings is to demonstrate that apostasy, which is a total desertion and departure from one's religion or cause, leads to judgment, even as God remains faithful to his covenant promises. Now I want to give just a brief summary of 1 Kings. First and Second Kings defends the justice and holiness of God. The divided kingdom of Israel and Judah had done that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in holy anger, the Lord cast them out of his presence. Toward the very end of the book in Second Kings, chapter 24, verses 19 and 20, speaking of the very last king of Judah, the 19th king, we read this. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. That was his predecessor. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence. The exile of Israel and later of Judah was not evidence of God's inability to protect his covenant people but were used of God to progress the promise and keep his covenant word. The purpose of the book is directly linked to the theology back in Deuteronomy. We see from Deuteronomy covenant warnings regarding possession of the promised land. His promises depended on covenant obedience by his people. Just prior to entering into the promised land, we read this in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. 27 verse 9 says this, Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Then over in chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, under the heading, Blessings on Obedience, we read, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then Moses lists out blessing after blessing after blessing that will come upon them if they obey the law of God that was provided to them. And we, we saw that in the reign of David, and in the early part of Solomon, and God fulfilled this promise. Great abundance and great blessing came to the nation of Israel as they were united under David and Solomon. 
But then jumping down to Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, we read of the curses of disobedience. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all the commandments and his statutes which I command you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then Moses lists out curse after curse after curse that will come upon them if they do not obey the law of God. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were weapons in God's hand to accomplish his covenant purposes. At the end of Solomon's reign, we see a divided kingdom and we see many of these curses come upon the nation of Israel and of Judah. God's faithfulness to the covenant promise he gave to David is also at the center of God's providential working. David's dynasty continues despite the reality that many of the kings failed terribly. The failure of Judah's kings serves the purpose of increasing the expectation of David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, who would establish a perfect kingdom of righteousness and peace. First Kings overviews Israel's history from David's death to Ahab's death, a period of about 120 years. This was a period where God demonstrated his continuing and unfailing covenant faithfulness, even though Judah and Israel constantly stumbled and failed in covenant obedience and often failed by blatantly and shamelessly sinning against God's law and his goodness toward them. Kings were evaluated on how they conformed to God's law with Deuteronomy in the background, not according to their military or their civil accomplishments. In Kings, we observe a focus on sins and failures, and this focus serves as an important redemptive function because it highlights the human condition that there is absolutely no remedy apart from the king who is coming to fulfill God's covenant promises. These kings show to us the great need for Jesus Christ and the gospel to fulfill what earthly kings could never, ever achieve. Many things in First and Second Kings points us to the promised Messiah. One obvious type of Christ is seen in the early days of Solomon, highlighting his wisdom, his wealth, and his many works. They're certainly foreshadowing and representative of Christ's kingdom. But they pale in comparison to Jesus who said this, behold, a greater than Solomon is here, Matthew 12, 42. And finally, we see in First and Second Kings that special attention is given to the prophets and the prophetic word. This has redemptive implications since faith comes by hearing the word of God. The kings of Judah and Israel were subject to that prophetic office. God sent his prophets to bring his authoritative and sure word, which threatened these kings with punishment and called them to repentance and announced deliverance. Probably some of the most significant prophets in these books of First and Second Kings were Elijah and Elisha, whom God raised up at a critical time when true religion was under extreme threat. Because of the preaching and miracles of Elijah and Elisha, matchless 
the matchless reality of the one and only living God became undeniable. The power of God's word brought light and life in dark places. However, that word must be believed and trusted and relied upon, even as we rely upon our bread and water for our bodies. The prophets of the kings testified to God's grace in sending preachers to warn of judgment, command repentance, and to announce the gospel of the Messiah. The intensity of God's word from these prophets, despite God's word being ignored and mostly rejected, nonetheless pointed to the reality of our human depravity that makes the gospel so necessary. It is our sin that makes the need for the gospel, and it's the gospel that provides the most wonderful and necessary remedy, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm referring to a slide now. Slide number three has popped up, and it says, take notice of the, of the three sections on this slide. First, look at section one on the left. First, you see King Saul, who was the first king of Israel at a time when Israel was united. Most scholars assert that Saul, David, and Solomon reigned collectively for about 120 years, with each of them occupying the throne of Israel for about 40 years, it's believed. Notice, as you follow down the first section of the slide, you'll see right away that the nation of Israel was no longer unified, but Israel became divided. The critical turning point in 1 Kings occurs in chapter 12, when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king and unwisely leads the nation to a civil war, which tragically rips the nation into two separate parts. And at times, they became conflicting against one another. Civil war happened between Judah and Israel. The ten tribes to the north were Israel. The two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, were called Judah. Next week in Sunday school, Jose will be giving us a survey of 2 Kings. So I don't want to spill over into his territory, but notice the vertical timeline stops with Judah showing only four kings after Solomon's death. And then Israel in the north shows only eight kings after his death because I cut it off to include only the kings from 1 Kings. In reality, Judah has 15 more kings to come before they're ransacked and taken to Babylon in 1586. And Israel to the north still has 11 more kings to go before they're destroyed completely and taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. If you look now at the middle section of this slide, I've provided a number of, I've provided the number of good kings versus bad kings in both the, the southern and northern tribes. So in Israel, out of 19 kings, there were 19 bad kings, zero good kings. And in Judah, out of the 19 kings of Judah, there were eight, eight kings that were considered righteous because they did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord their God. And finally, you see on the right side this map depicting the period when Judah and Israel were divided, a divided nation. This reminds me of our own civil war when Washington, D.C., 
the capital of the North was not very far away from the capital of the Southern Confederates in Richmond, Virginia. And you see on the map, the capital of Israel, which is Samaria, and then the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem, and they weren't that far apart. As I survey and highlight <coughs> portions of 1 Kings, you may follow as you glance on the outline, which the next slide would be an outline. Um, the first half of 1 Kings concerns the life of one of the most amazing men that ever lived. More than any man before or since, he knew how to amass and creatively use great wealth. With the sole exception of Jesus Christ, Solomon is the wisest man in human history. He brings Israel to the peak of its size and glory, and yet the kingdom is disrupted soon after his death, torn to, by civil war and strife. First Kings is a book that divides clearly into two sections. First, the United Kingdom in chapters 1 through 11 under Solomon, and then the divided kingdom, chapters 12 through 22. Chapters 1 through 11 give an account of Solomon's attainment to the throne, his wisdom, his architectural achievements, his fame, his wealth, and then his tragic unfaithfulness. In chapter 1, Solomon's half-brother, Adonijah, attempts to take the throne as David's death is nearing. But Nathan the prophet alerts David, who quickly directs the coronation of Solomon as co-regent with David before David dies. Solomon still has to consolidate his power and deal with those who oppose his rule. Only when this is done is the kingdom established in the hand of Solomon. And we could talk about many foreshadowings and types of Christ as he came as an incarnate man to conquer as a king. Solomon loves the Lord. In 1 Kings 3.3 we read, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. He begins well with a genuine love for Yahweh and a desire for wisdom. This wisdom leads to the expansion of Israel, to the zenith of power. Solomon's empire stretches from the border of Egypt all the way to Babylon and peace prevails in the land. Then we click to slide five. <clears throat> From a theocratic perspective, that is, this is a theocracy where God rules. From a theocratic perspective, as king over a unified Israel, Solomon's greatest achievement is the building of the temple. The ark is placed in this exquisite building, and there's a a replica of that on the screen, <laughs> um, which is filled with the glory of God, filled with that representative glory of God. Solomon offers a magnificent prayer of dedication and binds the people with an oath to remain faithful to Yahweh. Because the Lord is with him, Solomon continues to grow in fame, power, and wealth. However, his wealth later becomes a source of trouble because he begins to purchase forbidden items. He acquires many foreign wives who lead him into idolatry. It is an irony of history that this wisest of men acts as a fool in his old age. God pronounces judgment and foretells that Solomon's son 
will rule only a fraction of the kingdom Judah. Then in chapters 12 through 22, upon Solomon's death, God's word comes to pass. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, chooses the foolish course of promising more severe taxation. Jeroboam, an officer in Solomon's army, leads the 10 northern tribes in revolt. This reminds me of what Pastor Kennecott's been teaching through Exodus, how the Pharaoh put more and more burdens and taxes on the people. So the northern tribes make him their king, leaving only Judah and Benjamin in the south under Rehoboam. This is the beginning of a chaotic period with two nations and two sets of kings. Continually, there's hostility and strife existing between the northern and the southern tribes. The north is plagued by apostasy. Jeroboam sets up a false system of worship, and in the south, we have much idolatry. In 1 Kings, of all the northern and southern kings listed, this book only mentions kings Asa and Jehoshaphat that do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. There'll be more coming in 2 Kings. All of the other kings are idolaters and or murderers. King Ahab brings some cooperation between the northern and southern kingdoms, but still takes the throne of Israel to new depths of evil as he is the man who introduces Jezebel's Baal worship to Israel. The prophet Elijah ministers during this low period in Israel's history, providing a ray of light and a witness of the word of God and of the power of God. Still, Ahab's encounter with Elijah never bore fruit it, to turn his heart from the false gods to Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Ahab's duplicity in the matter of Naboth's vineyard causes a prophetic rebuke from the prophet Elijah. And Ahab repents, but later he dies in battle because he refuses to heed the words of Micaiah, another prophet of the Lord. Now we're going to transition to our final point. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of a righteous and faithful king of kings. Now, much more could be said of First Kings, and I'll leave it to your reading. We could go in depth into Solomon and his works of wisdom and his architecture and his great dominion over vast amounts of land, which do foreshadow the dominion that Christ has in his kingdom. And we could, we could look closely at Elijah and Elisha as well. But I wanted to leave some time to the fulfillment of all of these kings, what these kings should have been. And I hope we can get through most of it. With our Lord Jesus Christ's birth into this world, the kingdom has come. With the king comes the kingdom. His coming, his death, his resurrection, his inaugurated kingdom of God, Emmanuel, God with us, Listen as Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach 
and so you believed. And the next section is called the risen Christ, our hope. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Excuse me, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Christ, by the grace of God, by the gift of faith and repentance, if you've been born again, you will rise from the dead. But each one is in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and all. At the second coming of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom of God will take place. Then with final judgment, everything will be made new. We will enjoy a new body, a new earth, New, a new dimension of existence in a fully consummated kingdom of God of which the Old Testament kings were a pale, pale shadow. Jesus is the one who brings the covenant of peace between the two offices of priest and king. He's the mighty God. He has absolute power and reigns in and over the whole universe even now as as we sit here, wonderful counselor with a wisdom greater than Solomon. He's the prince of peace, crowned king of kings, not with jewels, but with thorns at Calvary where he crushed Satan's head. He completed the mission given to him by his eternal father. Jesus has purchased the church with his own perfect righteous life laying down his own holy soul and body on the cross, having died, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve. 
and he was raised from the dead triumphantly and he ascended into heaven where he has been seated at the right hand of the Father to receive all glory and honor due to his holy name, the righteous one, the faithful one, the one full of truth has completed his rescue mission of the helpless, hell-deserving sinners that we are. Not only is Jesus the promised covenant seed of the woman of the, of, and fulfillment of the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, they all were anointed at the hands of men. But Jesus, our Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, was anointed by the Father of glory. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the anointed one who fulfills all the types and all the shadows of the Old Testament. The Redeemer is God with us. The virgin birth makes him Emmanuel, God with us. The king and priest who bore his crown while crushing Satan's head and bringing down the wall separating Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah the prophet writes this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, capital H, to order it and establish it, with judgment and justice from the time from that time forward even forever the zeal of the lord of hosts will perform this says the prophet isaiah now with the time remaining i wanted to highlight a few ideas from john flavel john flavel uh, a wonderful puritan wrote two two sermons One's titled, Of the Kingly Office of Christ as it is executed spiritually upon the souls of the redeemed. And in that sermon, he deals with Christ subduing Satan and subduing sinners and making sinners reconciled as his friends and how he has dominion and power to do that as the king of kings. And then in the second sermon, it's titled, The Kingly Office of Christ as it providentially executed in the world for the redeemed. And in this sermon, he deals with the power and dominion of Christ, not so much in the souls of men, but over all things. And I just wanted to highlight with the time remaining some of the points that Flavel made in this second sermon. In this second sermon regarding providence, he uses Ephesians 1.22 as a springboard to share what I'm about to share with you. Ephesians 1.22, I'm going to read it, but I want to read, I'm going to read uh, the kind of lead up to it. It's not the actual scripture, but it's that scripture put in my words, and then I'll read verse 22. Paul is telling the Ephesians that after he heard of their faith in the Lord and love for all the saints, he does not cease to give thanks for them and make mention of them in his prayer. Then he tells them what he prays for, that they might have a spirit of wisdom and of knowledge of him, that is, the Father of glory, that they would know the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints 
and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. That same power worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now all that's to lead up to the actual verse Flavel uses as a springboard. Ephesians 1.22. And he, meaning the Father, put all things under his feet, meaning Jesus Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And so Flavel opens this up in time that I don't have to share everything with you, but let me highlight some of it. Paul is talking about the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that Jesus possesses as head over the church, all things are under his feet. The power that raised Christ even from the dead to a high and very high and glorious state to be the head both of this world and of the church. The head of the world by way of dominion, the head of the church by way of union. That's beautiful. We'll never suffer the way people in the world will suffer because we're in union with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ has a special influence ruling the world for the good of his people. He rules the world for the good of you, his people. The Father of glory, he gave him, Jesus Christ, to be head over all things to the church. In this scripture, notice four very important things that Flavel squeezes out of this short phrase. Number one, the dignity and authority committed to Christ. He has put all things under his feet, which implies full, ample, and absolute dominion in him as well as the complete subjection in and over them whom he reigns. God the Father put all things under the Son's feet. This is telling us that full, ample, and absolute dominion is in Jesus Christ, so much so that all things are subject to him. He reigns over them. That is in all things. The Father has delegated power to him, says Flavel. Listen to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight. I'm going to start with verse 25. My praise shall be of you, capital Y, in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. And now our verse, verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Right now, he rules over the nations. This is the authority Jesus has as our mediator. As our mediator, Jesus Christ receives as the reward or fruit of his suffering. Listen to Paul as he writes to the saints at Philippi. He writes, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God 
also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Number two, Flavel writes, Jesus Christ is the only one with this authority. He, Jesus Christ, is the first of all authority and power in the universe. Whatever authority any creature is clothed with is the derivative of Christ's power, whether it's political power in the government or whether it's ecclesiastical power in the church. Christ is only Lord, says Jude, verse 4. Number three, the object of this authority is the whole of creation. Paul writes that all things are put under his feet. He rules from sea to sea, even to the utmost bounds of God's creation. In John's gospel, chapter 17, verse 2, it says, you have given him power over all flesh. All creatures, rational, irrational, animate and inanimate, angels, devils, men, the wind, the sea, all obey Jesus Christ. And finally, number four, Flavel says, and especially take notice of this, what is the purpose for which Christ has been given this power to reign over all things? Why? For what does he govern and rule the universe? Well, it's for the church. This is a critical takeaway that all the affairs of the kingdom of providence are ordered and determined by Jesus Christ for the special advantage and everlasting good of his redeemed people. Oh, that we would remember this when a loved one is dying, when we get that diagnosis from the doctor, when we lose something that we didn't want to lose, when we gain something that we didn't want to gain. Jesus Christ is on his throne. He orders everything for his church. Paul writes to the saints in Corinth, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In that long passage from Paul, my eye went to verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. An inestimable privilege we have to be in Christ Jesus. There's nothing greater that we could ever want or ever need than to be in Christ Jesus where we're safe and we know that our lives are in his hand no matter what happens. No matter what happens. I remember over the last 10 years, death has come into our home and into the home of my parents and my, my in-laws 
And it's only these truths that God is on his throne that enables us to grieve and to go through those things with peace, a peace inside of us to know that everything is okay because God's on his throne. And that's true of, of any trial that you have. God has a purpose. Well, having pulled out some rich arguments from Ephesians 1.22 regarding the power given to Christ as mediator and that Christ uses the power on behalf of the church, Flavel then goes on to explain seven methods by which Christ rules and reigns on behalf of the church. I'm not going to open those up. I'm just going to give you the headings. We don't have time to track each of these down, but trust me when I tell you that there are multiple verses in the Old and New Testament that backs these assertions from Flavel. Jesus orders all things for his people as he supports, permits, restrains, limits, protects, punishes, and rewards his children in order to bring about the good purposes he has on behalf of his redeemed church. He can do that because he has way, way, way more wisdom than Solomon. Way, way, way more power than Solomon. Way, way, way more faithfulness and righteousness than Solomon. His wisdom and power is infinite. Is infinite. So it's a mystery for us as you're listening saying, Christ rules, but he allowed this and he allows that and I was hurt in this way, and I was injured in that way? Yes, he knows what he's doing. And sometimes we don't realize that till after the storm. And then we look back, why didn't I trust him? He has my good. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things that consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. It is a considerable part of Christ's glory to have a whole world of creatures owing their being and hourly conservation to him, says Flavel. Then Flavel goes on to explain that Jesus Christ's administration of these providences is always holy and wise and just and is the most supreme and sovereign providence. Indeed, whatever he pleases, that he does in heaven and in earth and in all places. Psalm 135.6. Indeed, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, writes John in Revelation 19.16. Also, his providence is inscrutable. It's inscrutable. It's profound. Your mercy, O Lord. Psalm 36.5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. 
Wow, that's delicious. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. In your light, we see light. First Peter says, 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His providence is irresistible, Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And the providence of Christ are always in perfect harmony. Christ's providence works in a special and, and peculiar way for the good of you, his child, his brother, his friend. Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, that we might believe that. Just a few applications really quickly. Knowing that Christ is ruling and reigning all things for the elect, for the church, our for our spiritual good, we may trust him that he's caring for us. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Flavel writes, it is Christ that does all for you, that is done. He looks down from heaven upon all that fear him. He sees when you are in danger by temptation and cast into providence. He sees when you are sad and orders reviving providence to refresh you. He sees when corruptions prevail and orders humbling providences to purge them. Whatever mercies you have received all along are the order, orderings of Christ for you. And you should carefully observe how the promises and providences have kept equal pace with one another and both gone step by step with you until now. Number two, has God left the government of the whole world in the hands of Christ and trusted him over all? Yes, indeed he has. Then we should also leave our particular concerns in the hands of Christ as well. What about your future spouse? Trust God. What about the problems with your present spouse? Seek God. What about your financial situation? Leave it to God. What about your physical and mental health? Rest in God. What about your secret fears and anxieties? Cast them onto God. What about your besetting sin that seeks to wreck the peace of God in your soul? Feed on his word. Pray to him and trust him. Christ is on his throne. He has all things in his good hands, which is infinitely better than being in my hands or your hands. The great theologian Melanchthon was depressed and Luther came to him and said, let Philip cease to rule the world. It is none of our work to steer the course of providence or direct its motions, but submit quietly to him that does. There is an itch in men, yes, in the best of men, to be disputing with God. Jeremiah says, let me talk with you of your judgment. Yes, how apt are we to regret providence as if it had no connection at all to the glory of God and our good. Even Moses struggled. We find him in Exodus 5 saying, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I have came to Pharaoh... To speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Hindsight is twenty twenty. 
And we have no need to fear men either. When Jesus Christ is on the throne, we need not fear man. We just need to fear God. If all depends on Christ's pleasure, then sure it is your wisdom and mine to take him along with us to every action and every business we have. It's not lost when we spend our time in prayer. The works of the Lord should be studied. And then he goes on. I'm going to stop there. He goes on and explains how we should study the works of the Lord. And he opens that up, that we should really think about every blessing and every difficulty and see what is the Lord trying to teach us to examine ourselves and to be able to worship him and thank, thank him no matter what we're going through. Well, let's pray and we'll end. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for the book of Kings, first and second Kings, and how we see your faithfulness, your covenant faithfulness to your people despite our disobedience and our rebellion. We thank you for keeping your promise that you made in the garden that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. Oh, help us to look to you, Father, to look to Christ and to the Spirit and to the Word that we might fight this holy war for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.